You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. I know this sounds like nonsense, but it doesn't actually occur to me that I am writing personal essays when I'm writing. Well, because there's just plenty of narcissistic juice to just like, it's fine, it'll just come out. And it, but, but I think if I actually thought that I was sort of exposing myself or being uh, writing in a confessional manner, I, I would think I would, I probably wouldn't do it. Ooh, hi everyone. Hello. How are we all? This is a bit exciting. So good evening and welcome to this In Conversation event with Sloane Friggin Crosley. Oh. Yeah. So we're using the Christian name. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. My name is Jacqueline Krupe and I'm a bookseller at Hill of Content Bookshop, a book editor, an event host and just a generally bookish person. I'm really delighted to be in conversation with Sloane tonight. I should mention that I am sadly not Brodie Lancaster, who unfortunately is unwell at home, but who we send get well wishes to. I'd like to acknowledge that this event is taking place on the land of the Wurundjeri Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. I pay respects to their elders past and present. Tonight's event is presented by the Wheeler Centre and Sloane Crosley appears in partnership with Adelaide Writers Week, where she's just been, and Sydney Opera House's All About Women Festival, which she's just about to go to. This event is supported by the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund, a Victorian Government and City of Melbourne partnership. So I'm going to introduce Sloane now. I've cut this down a lot, but there's still a lot to say. Oh, no. So she's the author <laughs> of the New York Times bestselling essay collection, I Was Told There'd Be Cake and How Did You Get This Number, as well as Look Alive Out There, and the bestselling novels The Clasp and Cult Classic. She's featured in the Library of America's 50 Funniest American Writers, which I think is the coolest thing ever. The Best American Non-Required Reading, Philip Lopate's The Contemporary American Essays, and others. She was the inaugural columnist for the New York Times, Op-Ed's Howney series. She's a contributing editor at Interview Magazine, a columnist for the Village Voice, Vanity Fair. The in- it just goes on. I'm going to... But her next non-fiction book, which I hope we can talk a little bit about, is Grief is for People, which will be published next year. There will be time for audience questions, and I will throw to you um, towards the end of the event. So if you have any questions, store them up. There will be roving mics, um, and they will come to you. Our bookseller tonight, funnily enough, is my wonderful colleague at Hill of Content Bookshop, Bella, and she has copies of Sloane's latest novel, Cult Classic, as well as her other books. So look at us all out at night to talk about books and writing and ideas. Jamie Lee Curtis just the other day declined an invite to an Oscar nominee dinner that started at 7pm because, and I quote, she goes to bed early. I have never related to something so hard in my life. She then added, there is nothing good happening with me after 9pm. Nothing. Zero. This is true for me too, so we're on the clock, so let's go. (laughs) So something else that happened this week is the writer who's on tour, Rebecca Mackay, with her wonderful new novel, she said, if you get drunk and you want to lie, you're a fiction writer. And if you get drunk and you want to tell the truth, you're a memoirist. And if you get drunk and you want to lay on the hood of the car and look at the sky, then you're a poet. So you've written two memoir essay collections, then a novel, then another essay collection, then a novel, non-fiction, fiction, non-fiction, fiction. fiction. What happens when you get drunk? Or more precisely, what does switching between these two forms offer you as a writer? Sobriety. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that... uh, I think actually we're very mixed up as a culture in a sort of sincere way in how we describe these things. Um, I was having this conversation the other day with someone where if I give you a a memoir and I say, um, or if I give you a novel and I say, it's just so realistic, you know, Mm. it's really, it's really captured something about um, the known world. Um, That's very strange because it's fiction. And if I give you a memoir, maybe the highest compliment that we can give it is to say this is unbelievable. Mm. (laughs) And just sort of the language we use about these things is so strange. So for me, though, I feel like, yes, there are big, um, if this was like a house, you'd talk about good bones, you know, like this is Mm. like there are big sort of structural bone level differences to approaching fiction and nonfiction. One is... um, the truth and one is full of crap. Um, but I don't know which one. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no, but I guess what I'm saying is that like, um, but on a sort of um, 
more detailed level, there are only so many ways to say, like, I, I picked up this glass or I moved this glass, you know, and it's going to sound the same in fiction and nonfiction. So it's about either throwing your voice for fiction or diving deeper into it, I suppose, for nonfiction. Yeah, interesting. So what then determines the form through which you explore an idea? Mm. Um, I mean, I feel like, honestly, the characters, I mean, the thing is that both of the novels do have a sort of, I, I realize this, like a sort of quippy quality to them mm. and are, you know, for as fantastical as they can be, sort of comedy of manners. Um, but I do feel like those ideally are about the characters and the story that I want to tell. Mm. Whereas fiction, it's more like, <laughs> what's annoying me? Right. <laughs> I mean, nonfiction. Sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, See, I just messed it up. <laughs> or not, for nonfiction, it's what's, you know, it feels a little bit um, less, it feels more guided by commentary. Mm. Whereas I feel like uh, fiction is guided by either, um, you know, hiding that commentary or those politics or whatever it is in a story or but really by telling what is hopefully a halfway decent story yeah nice I want to talk more about characters and get into this book a little bit but first um given how willing you are to mine your own life for essay material Mm. you have been quite private about your romantic life (laughs) with just the exception of one essay that final essay in how did you get this number which we don't need to go into, you all need to read that essay if you haven't already. And I wondered, you know, perhaps you're choosing to use some of the material of your dating life for fiction Mm. and maybe you want to tell us that or maybe you don't. Um, But have you consciously and deliberately avoided writing about your love life in Mm. essay form? Um, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, I got to (laughs) go. But it's, it's late. Yeah, yeah, it is late. Yeah, um, no, I, I, I think I have, um, for half pure and half sort of superficial reasons that neither of which are terrible. But the, the pure one is that I think these topics are so huge. Um, mm. You know, human relationships, sort of hetero relationships, or, or um, you know, closure, all this stuff that we're fed and either, you know, going along with it, being in conversation with and undoing it. And they've been wrestled with by some pretty well-qualified wrestlers. So for me to just belabor this analogy and get in the ring (laughs) um, and talk about dating and romance and that kind of thing, um, I just just would want or was trying to wait for my own angle on it. but I think the less, the sort of more like the less artistic reason is frankly, I've written over a hundred essays, maybe two of them involve dating and instantly you get slotted into a box that is a perfectly respectable one that has like sex in the city in it, let's say, but I just have no business being in there because it's not what I normally write about. And so I feel like it changes the assignments you get, the media coverage, it changes a lot of stuff. And I know that sounds sort of like a um, kind of Weasley scared, cowardly reason to not write about something, but it is sort of the life that you have to then live with. Um, So I think it's honestly almost for, hopefully not careerist, but career protective reasons that I've avoided it. Um, And then it went into this novel. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. But um, So it was never just to protect yourself. No, because I don't yeah. feel the, the trick to, I mean, this is without being too broad about it. I mean, at least I find, I don't know if, if, you know, you find this too, but like, I feel like the trick to writing about yourself is to not write about yourself. Mm-hmm. It's that you are the, you know, sort of prism or, you know, the observational tank, what, um, through which something is passing. Yeah. Everything's fine. It's like, I'm not jet like, <laughs> um, but <laughs> words, um, but, but, you know, you're sort of that. And so I doesn't, I know this sounds like nonsense, but it doesn't actually occur to me that I am writing personal essays when I'm writing them. Wow. That's amazing to me. And um, because, well, because there's just plenty of narcissistic juice to just like, it's fine. It'll just come out. And they, but, but I think if I actually thought that I was sort of exposing myself or being uh, writing in a confessional manner, mm. I, I would think I would, I probably wouldn't do it. Wow. Because your first essay collection really did come out at what might well have been sort of the peak of that personal essay moment yeah. of the late 2000s. Yes. Or the, yeah. Like it was like Megan Dom yes. and Nora Ephron. Yes. And, yeah. and you. 
well. <laughs> and then you. Um, how do you feel now looking back and rereading those essays and thinking about that that moment? Oh, my gosh. Okay. Um, the, my honest answer is anytime when someone asks me, because I have three books of essays, like, which one should I read? I'm like, why isn't there a mixtape for books? Because <laughs> I feel like there's like some gems in all of them yeah, and yeah. some that, you know, make me cringe at my youth, I suppose, yeah. um, or at a different kind of world um, where at the time that I was told there'd be cake was published, it actually really wasn't. I mean, it was a paperback original straight to DVD. Um, <laughs> um, but it wasn't, you know, it was sort of considered, um, you know, I didn't have a platform or anything like that. Mm. Um, and it wasn't really considered a popular thing to do. I got no money for it. I mean, some money, but I mean, sure. I could buy us both a sweater. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like it's not. And so I feel like, uh, I think there is something though, that even though it was an ex exciting surprise hit. Mm. That's really the best position to be in where you can write something in a vacuum, not actually thinking you're writing towards a trend and really not bouncing off of um, a ton of peers. Mm. Because I look at, let's say, David Sedaris, David Rakoff, Nora Ephron, and it's not like I'm like, oh, I'm going <laughs> to elbow those people out of the way. <laughs> you know, you're not yeah. thinking like that. No. So, um it was sort of a pure experience, even if I'm a little embarrassed by some of them. Sure. Well, I mean, I think if any of us had published a collection of essays at that age, you would have yeah. been. I was 20 27 when yeah. they when I wrote them. When yeah. I when I finished the manuscript, yeah. I was 27. It's so funny. What balls? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but surely something we would all cringe at something that we did. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but then page. I bound it and sold it, and that's yeah. my own. That's that's my yeah. bed to lie yeah, in. Yeah, you yeah. know. <laughs> um, you've mentioned Sex in the City, so I also have to mention it. Sure. If it taught us anything. And now we're getting to this book. Okay. Um, it's that in a city like Manhattan, a woman bumping into her necks at the worst possible moment yes. is a rite of passage. Can you introduce us, Melbourneites, to the romantic and dating life in New York City? Mm. Well, one thing I would say is that there's a lot of stuff where, I don't know if you're familiar with Cindy Adams. She was an old gossip columnist, but she used to always say, only in New York, kids. And, mm. um, you know... God rest her soul, but like not really. Right, like <laughs> right. it's like dating anywhere. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot like people run into each other in yeah. Kansas City. Yeah, I'm sure. 90. Maybe sure. not. I haven't directly <laughs> asked anybody and they're like, no, we've never actually dated anyone. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's like so, but I will say that um, you know, there is a line somewhere in Sex in the City early on where I can't remember which character says it to what other character, but something like, isn't it crazy that, you know, this island can house all oh, of our ex-boyfriends? I remember that so well. Um, and Miranda I do, says it. Okay, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> and Yeah, and I do think that um, it's not the island and it's not the crowds. It's just that um, you, you tend to just sort of operate in the same circles and it's mm -hmm. hard to get out of them. Mm -hmm. um, from an industry perspective, most of my friends are writers, work with writers, and are, are artists. You know, I have, like, one school teacher friend and one um, friend who, like, works for Cisco, and I value them so much. Because <laughs> they offer something different. <laughs> yeah, 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 because they're, they're like, we don't care. I'm like, oh, that's beautiful. Keep going. <laughs> Tell me more about how, how little you care about whose short story yeah, was in Tin House. Yeah. I, please. Yeah. Um, and so, but so I feel like, but I, so I don't know, maybe I lost the thread of the question. But I just, I never know really what to sort of say about it. But I do feel that there's a moment where my character, my heroine, Lola, says something like um, that, you know, it leads to this sort of psychological, this sort of storytelling, this myth self-mythologizing mm -hmm. you have if you date several different people that you're somehow a mess and you mm -hmm. take that home with you. And at some point she says, maybe the only thing wrong with me is that I'm just a woman who graduated college, came here and didn't leave. leave. I actually had that quote written yeah. in at some point. It's, like I love something, that it's just like, maybe yeah. that's it. And you should just give yourself yeah. a freaking break. Yeah. You know, I also love the moment where she bumps into an ex and she's wearing the same outfit that she wore when they broke up. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, he thinks I'm just, I've been wearing this outfit. Yeah. yeah so. That she's walking around like in a mausoleum, like dedicated <laughs> 
to it's this guy. Such a great detail. I actually thank you. I think I took that from having that experience many times, weirdly, right. with handing my no, with handing my driver's license to oh. somebody and being like, I have more than. <laughs> Like I wash my I love that. So one of the big themes that this book deals or grapples with is closure. Um, what it is to confront our past and then be able to move on, and it really questions whether that's possible or even something we should want. Mm. And this and after all that grappling, I wondered where did you end up with your thinking on closure as a concept? And is it as Lola at one point ruminates late in the book? And she says, I think if closure exists, it's being okay with a lack of it. Yes. So I think what's, it's so interesting to see what people are getting from this book and what they're sort of plucking from it. And she's a very, very cynical lady. Um, and I think it's the parts of, you know, I've, obviously I've had all these thoughts that are in the book, but it's it's just dialed up in yeah, this like sure. very um, extreme way. But um, I think in her sort of softer moments, uh, she probably has more in common, hopefully, with me. Um, and yeah, I do think it's being okay with the lack of it because I think that you are fed this narrative, or, or everyone is, not just women, men, whatever, um, that you know you sort of want to assign blame and figure out you know where the sort of morality or amoral action lies in any relationship mm -hmm. so that you can um, get over that hurdle faster and put it behind you. And I think after a while, if you do that, I'm just going to put a number on it five times. Sure. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think you uh, start to develop a side problem. And the side problem is a tremendous amount of disrespect for your own love life and your mm -hmm. own taste because you just want it to go away so you can like have this grand narrative you were promised where everybody else was just a, boil a bullet point mm -hmm. until you, you know. And I just feel like um, that idea I find so uh, offensive <laughs> to uh, one's own taste and one's own life. Um, and so I think that part of the reason I wrote the book is to have this sort of character that gets to find out a little more about the whole picture through this sort of speculative fiction um, about her own love life and what actually happened with all these gentlemen. Yeah. I want to take a minute to talk about um, your heroine and protagonist Lola. We don't see many Lolas in contemporary fiction. She's Oh, am I supposed to sing now? <laughs> Is this when I get to sing? <laughs> <laughs> she's 37 years old. Oh, okay. She's not a mother. She's messy and she's yes. funny and she's unsure of what she wants. And I feel like we see a lot of 20-something Lolas, mm. but we don't see many 30-something approaching 40 um, Lolas. Can you tell us a bit about where Lola came from and how yeah. you found her voice? Sure. I mean, I think that there's that thing. It's, again, I mean, the whole book is sort of written um, – not because I'm going to reinvent the wheel, but to turn some of the tropes that we have, like just to challenge them slightly. And uh, one of those things is like people say this stuff about like this, like this, like overly clean definition of growth and mm. decades. It's like oh, your twenties are for being wild, and your thirties are for experimenting, and your forties are for not caring anymore. And I'm like, is there, is there, <laughs> is there a clock on this? Yeah. Like. I, and so I like the idea of someone, because then it leaves out everyone who hasn't figured it out yeah. after a certain age. And I think that you can be um, both sure of and confused about yourself at, at six years old and at 60 years old. Um, and But for her, it's a specific, I made her that age because I wanted her, A, to have enough, frankly, of a past mm. so she could run into all these people. I wanted her to feel the pressure of really what it would be like to potentially break up with her fiancé that she's engaged to. Yeah, yeah. Her fiancé she's engaged to. You guys know what it means. Um, we haven't brought him up. But yeah, yes. but yes, but yeah. you know, her, her, to feel the pressure of, mm. you know, babies, to feel that last, mm. you know, bell for that kind of thing. Um, so there's a lot of stuff you get that I think is very rich material for a female heroine who's a mess, who's slightly older than 26 because mm. also I have a hard time then both um, you know film plays TVs novels um, I have a hard time empathizing with someone who thinks their life is over when they break up with someone or are broken up with at like 25 yeah. I mean I have the empathy that I have for like a teenager where nothing hurts like that first hurt sure. um, 
but I don't have the sort of doom and gloom empathy of like, wow, you have a lot of hard decisions in front of you. Yeah. I feel like the narrative you spoke of as well, it sort of assumes that you're a different person in all of these stages of life. Yeah. But you're still the same person in your mid-40s that you were in your mid-20s. You just... I mean, hopefully you take a little more with you, but I don't think that there's this sense of, um, you know, I mean, I think maybe therapy helps. Yeah. And maybe, you know, maybe you can buy nicer clothes and stuff, but you're the same fundamentally messed up person the whole way through. Yeah. Fun. It's fun. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So a lot of the book and all the key moments when Lola bumps into one of her exes take place in Chinatown, downtown New York. And I just wondered... I mean, I've been to New York, but I just wondered why you chose that location mm. as that as the, the spot. Oh, okay. So um, this won't ruin anything. Um, I mean, it will, but <laughs> we'll be okay. <laughs> just a, a little bit. So basically, um, the just a quick like overview of the very first half of the plot mm. is that um, she used to work for a magazine called Modern Psychology, which is obviously psychology today it's like the least creative part of the entire novel. Um, but it, it, it uh, shudders in the in the book and she's at a reunion dinner with um, some of her former colleagues that she's still quite close with including her old boss um, Clive Glenn who's become this sort of like pop psych guru guy who's like on you know morning shows because um, he used to edit this psychology magazine um, she steps out to get a cigarette and runs into boyfriend number or ex-boyfriend number one and then it keeps happening and happening in various ways. And it turns out that Clive's new endeavor is that he has basically gutted an abandoned synagogue on the Lower East Side and turned it into an upscale mind control cult. (laughs) So it like starts out like Richard Linkletter and then ends somewhere like with aliens. Uh, not really. But uh, but the point is, is that, um, so it's not the Chinatown aspect of it. The Chinatown aspect of the Lower East Side is what, I mean, it's always been there, but also um, I think in the past like 20 years has become like hyper fetishized through restaurants and through people living there. And they call it Chinatown more than they call it the Lower East Side. Right. But even when I first moved to New York, it was, it felt separate. Um, and, but of course it's also got a huge history of, um, you know, like Jewish immigrants and my grandmother lived on the Lower East Side and like my grandmother lived on Orchard Street, like right next to what is now like a Chinese like fusion restaurant. (laughs) Like, you know, it's it's this this, like mix. But so what was really the sort of um, thing that like called me there for the novel, if I can be so hokey, uh, was actually really the concentration of old synagogues and old shuls. that I wanted to gut. Um, but it also had to be somewhere, <laughs> it sounds terrible, um, but it also had to be um, a location that's sort of walkable and cool that like many people would go to. Like right. there's a reason it doesn't take place in Williamsburg, you know, yeah. so it had to be all these different people had reason to descend upon this very thriving young area. And and why did you want to gut a synagogue? You're, you're like, why do you? <laughs> this is a larger question about Judaism. <laughs> um, no, I think it's just I was sort of inspired by a couple of them in particular. Um, and there's a, a couple until recently. It's pretty recent. There were a lot that were just sort of on the market. Mm. Like there aren't really, you know, most of the property in New York is owned by the church or NYU. Um, and then there's some that the, some of these synagogues that were like these sort of half abandoned sort of derelict shuls. And now they've mostly been, um, cared for and either turned into like art centers or back into synagogues. And the one I'm thinking of in, uh, particular, um, Jacob Javits used to go there. George Burns used to go there and it just sort of had fallen into disrepair and it was, um, a rare moment where something in real life really inspired the fiction, where yeah. I saw the building and really kind of fell for it. Um, I won't go into it too much, but the, your, your descriptions of the interior and what this cult, this mind control cult, how they set it up and what they do is so brilliant. Thank you. Um, but you, you're, you've all read it or you're about to read I it. Say, I basically um, say it's like the inside of the Guggenheim. Like it looks yes. like it's like graffiti on yeah. the outside and the inside is like, oh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so the tone of the book is Deeply funny, gently nostalgic, <laughs> and then quite black, dark, darkly humorous, let's say. Um, Lola's disenchanted with men. She's feeling ambivalent about marriage. 
The question of whether true love and happy endings are even possible is up for grabs for most of the book. And even the ending, I don't think you totally give us <laughs> that happy ending romantic comedy thing, which is fine. You're playing with all the tropes. But how do you pr- approach that tonal balance? Mm. Um, well, a couple of things is that I think the secret underpinning of the book is actually not romance. Um and I'm going to say something, and you you can throw your mic at me. Okay, I'm ready. And Flip that's fine. It's about the friends we made along yeah. the way. And, and I, I, both your novels are, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, well, one more, obviously, yeah. I think. That's, yeah, that's a, yeah. Nice, that's a nice point that's true. But I feel like for this, it's really about, you know, um, it's about different kinds of romances. Mm. And it's in a way, it's about the kind she has with her best friend. And it's also about the thwarted romance with Clive, her ex-boss, where it's like, Maybe something was going to happen with them, and it never did, and they never said anything, and then they walked it back, and they I say that somehow this friendship kind of calcified, but over this sort of unresolved mm. issue. Um, and, like, I feel like there's so much, and maybe it has something in common, therefore, um, with my nonfiction, where I, when I said, you know, I don't feel like I'm writing about myself, like, I don't know if I was directly conscious of trying to create a certain tone. Um, I think it's the tone of the character and the tone of how I write. Um, I mean, if you're not on board with the sort of tone of it by the last, like, ten pages, right. then then I commend you for having made it so far <laughs> in the book. Yeah. 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 So you're playing with genre in this book. It, yeah. it feels like you're playing with genre. And it's got, it does have, I mean, it has elements of romantic comedy, comedy of manners, psychological thriller, a speculative fever dream. And I wondered, <laughs> how do you think about this novel in relation to genre, if indeed that has any yeah. bearing on your thinking? So I do think it's speculative. Um, I don't think it's like magical realism, which has mm. political undertones or science fiction. Um I think, um, yeah, I just, I, I really honestly, there's some things that's so funny. So when, when I was dealing with or, you know, starting to embark upon conversations about the marketing of the book in the, in the States, a lot of people talked about this, like t- this big twist that it took, mm. which part of which I've sort of touched on mm. already. And then there's, there's more to come. Um, but this big sort of like, oh, it, be, it becomes this other thing and it's, is it speculative and is it, you know, all these like sort of, um, out of this world things. And what's funny about it is I'm like, well, it's like a weird admission, but it maybe it's some sort of weird psychosis on my part, but I'm like, I don't see it. I think it's normal. Really? <laughs> because I really think that so much of the book, another sort of thread that runs through it, in addition to the sort of interpersonal relationships, um, as you can probably guess, it's a commentary, a commentary on wellness culture mm. and a commentary on technology mm. as well in terms of how they're dragging these men um, to this sort of very small radius around the synagogue. And I feel like in the book, these packages that they're going to offer people cost like $150,000, $250,000. But like, I really genuinely feel like if any of you <laughs> gave me your phone, <laughs> don't really do give me your phone right now. <laughs> She's and got like, crazy ideas. Like, don't, don't give the crazy lady on station punch. But, um, but you know, but and and your Instagram password yeah. and like a couple, and you gave me like a week. I could put you and someone you don't want to see in the same restaurant oh for like fifty dollars and like a sandwich. Yeah. Like it wouldn't cost. It wouldn't cost a hundred and fifty grand. Yeah. So I just feel like I've made it sound for the sake of suspense and fiction right. and just fun, um, more speculative than I actually think it is that's so interesting so it's kind of weird it's like everyone is in on the joke except for me yeah yeah. (laughs) I want to come back to technology and this idea because I think that is deeply disturbing um, (laughs) that was my only goal (laughs) to disturb (laughs) yes (laughs) another uh, sort of preoccupation of the book is the past and this um I've got this quote here from Brandon Taylor in his novel Real Life where he talks Mm. about I love this quote. There comes a time when you have to stop being who you were, when you have to let the past stay where it is, frozen and impossible. You have to let it go if you're going to keep moving, if you're going to survive, because the past doesn't need a future. 
But in this novel, <laughs> you find a way to repeatedly revisit the past and the lure of re revisiting the past is so strong for Lola. Mm -hmm. um, why is it so hard to leave our pasts behind? Because I could really, I felt that. I feel like it's, it's specifically her romantic past. Mm, and so therefore it's specifically who she is. It's a reflection of her. It's not supposed to be this sort of... Um, misandry, if that's the word, or this condemnation mm. of all these men. I mean, honestly, it's really fun to write about like the silly behaviors of the opposite sex. Of course yes. it is. But um, I feel like uh, maybe a retort to that quote, which I agree with from some angles, mm. but a retort would be, you know, the Joan Didion line about, you know, the importance of staying in touch with the people we used to be. Mm. And so it's... Um, I guess it's the difference between acknowledging how you've grown and nursing wounds. Yeah. I think his quote is to say, it's all nursed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Keep going, yeah. you know, because the past does have no future. It's beautiful to say that. But I feel like, uh, I think someone else also said we're doomed to repeat it, yeah, right? So um, That's not even past, is it? Yes, so, yeah, exactly. Um I don't watch much TV, but um, I am one of those people who watches the show everybody's talking about and I just think it's banal and I don't understand why people watch it. But I want to talk – Any show, literally any show. You name a, f a popular show, I'll watch one episode. Succession. Of oh, no. No, no. <laughs> but a show I'm completely obsessed with that really you and your – this book and this show have a lot in common, is Russian Doll. Mm. I think it's the most interesting. And I just want to talk to you about that show. Yeah. Please. yeah. No. Okay. So first first of all, first draft of this handed in before that aired. No way. And I like, and like the first, like the second episode, maybe it's established that they have an apartment in what used to be like a potentially haunted yeah. synagogue. And I'm just like, I'm, I don't know if, can you, is it possible to anger eat popcorn? <laughs> 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 um, but I, I love that show yeah. actually. But that's a more um, that actually has that sort of metaphysical mm. um, time loop, Groundhog Day, um, Palm Springs, you know yeah. that that thing. Um, so that is actually closer to science fiction, yeah. um, you know, wormhole theory, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I do, yeah. I mean, it's it's just funny that. Uh, you know, God bless Natasha Leone. I feel like she yeah. saw the same thing I did, which well, is I think turning this area yeah. into something. There was something magical about that yeah. area of New York, you know? Yeah. And she really went for it with the magic. Mine's just one building. Right. It's not like her, <laughs> it's not like the whole, it's not like the Truman Show. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just one building. <laughs> but um, if you haven't watched that show, then you must. It's and, great. Yeah. And there's a cat in it. And there is a cat in it. Yeah. A little dog, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to go back to technology sure. <laughs> um, and the role it can play in our search for meaning and closure. And it might mitigate the forces, well, as you presented in this book, it might mitigate the forces of fate and destiny and even personal choice. Mm. Tell us about your feelings about technology. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> she speaks into the mic that is organic. <laughs> um I mean, I think the thing is, the, the commentary in the book is that, you know, we have the ability to fix everything. And this mm. is honestly generally the commentary in a lot of stories like mine. I don't think this aspect of it is me reinventing the wheel where there's, okay, well, we have an app that can tell you how to, like, uh, pick out the tile on the bathroom that you don't have. And it tells you how much water to drink. And it does not help you do according to Clive in the book, the most important thing, which is to figure out if you're with the right person, mm. to figure out if this is what you should be doing, mm. you know, um, because allegedly you're just supposed to rely on your gut, but that's really hard, ironically, because of technology, yeah. <laughs> because of all the apps, because yeah. of this sort of um, glut, embarrassment, murder of um, options and choice we have. Um, and so I think a lot of the question is not just about closure, but... Um, whether or not love is a choice, what is settling, what is good enough, what is betrayal of your past self and what is growing up. Um, and I don't think actually at the end of the day that technology can, can really help you with no. those things. Yeah. So that's the, that's the stuff of life. Isn't yes. It? Yeah. No, I don't think, I don't think you can, uh, outsource, um, your soul to an app yet. <laughs> yet. Technology. By the time we got off stage. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned the, the, the twist and the the first sort of turn the book takes. And before that, it's pretty much telling a story yeah. what feels like straight and then you 
you spin the reader around. And I wondered when you set out to write it, did you know the book would have that narrative shift? I did. You did. So I did, and I, I'm 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 glad you asked that um, <laughs> because. I think it was partially um, a technical lesson, uh, a little bit from The Clasp, which is my first novel that, you know, if this one focuses on romance, the first one is about three friends, um, but also has a kind of shift. You mm. have these people mm. who have this sort of navel-gazing kind of life. Um, and if I want to do that, I have three nonfiction books. So, <laughs> so I'm like, okay, let's give them this sort of perverse twisted wish fulfillment mm. and in the clasp one of the characters basically goes nuts decides to go hunting after like an old artifact in the north of France and then the other two follow him on this sort of weird caper um, and in this one it's like okay it's just like talking about relationships and she sort of is longing for something to make a decision for her mm. or to spring her out of her uh, funk um and I looked at this character and I thought, okay, careful what you wish for. Right. And I feel like, but I knew it earlier yeah, in this one. You I knew, yeah, I that. absolutely knew that she was going to really get screwed over. Yeah, nice. Because um, I did wonder, like, did this story take you by surprise or is that? There are elements of the story that, that do take you by surprise. You have to leave a little room for that. Yeah. I mean, I do think that there is... Writer, all fiction writers, um, especially, are very uh, different with this. Um, I recently um, was at a book party for um, someone who who does speak in these sort of grand um, tones about, or these grand with this grand language about his own writing, and said something about like, you know, I thought, how am I gonna? This is him talking, you know, how am I gonna have this narrator that spans, you know, X Y Z centuries, and you know, all of a sudden I heard this voice say, ask me, ask me. <laughs> and I like, it's like a well-respected writer. And I was looking at a friend of mine next to me. I'm like, are you kidding me with this? Like, and it, but I do think that like a dose of that, you mm. need a little dose mm. of that kind of magic. It mm. can't just be paint by numbers. And I find as someone who primarily writes narrative nonfiction, I find that balance still very difficult. Mm. Like when do I let it sort of take off? Um, but it will never be. Ask me. No, <laughs> ask I don't me. have the I don't have the genes <laughs> for ask me. There's a really wonderful section um, in the book of rage. It's a bit over halfway through the book. It starts on page 147 for people who are going to start reading it on the way <laughs> for home. For the folks at home, <laughs> yeah. When the the narrator, you ju she just sort of lets loose on all these men and their, their dating profiles and expectations and insecurities and just all of their crap, these men. And it's all the lines start with men who. Men who, yeah. Men, men who. who. And it's just, it's a delicious rant that's funny and revealing and I think so many people who've ever dated a man, <laughs> uh, they we're right there with you. And I just wondered, what did it feel like to write that section? I feel like it must have felt great. Yeah, it had to be edited down. Is that did your it? question? Right. Um, yeah. I, well, thank you. It did feel good. I will say a couple of things. One is it's when she's deciding whether or not she's going to embark upon this experiment she's been yes. offered. Sorry, that is crucial. No, no, no. It's fine. It's actually not the – you can sort of airlift mm. it out, and there's a reason why it's dead smack in the middle of the book. It's sort of meant as this sort of grand set piece where it is. The actual thing I thought of is there's a short story, a very famous one um, by Jamaica Kincaid called Girl. Mm. Um, and it's written in the second person. It's like you, 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 you. And it's just got this amazing, beautiful twist at the end where it's basically an older woman telling a younger woman how to be. Like, this is what you do. You do this on Sunday. This is how you wring out the laundry. This is how you know you do all this stuff. The very end, the girl talks back and just asks one question because she says, you know, this is, you know, you insist that the baker let you feel the bread before you buy it. And the girl says, well, what if the baker won't let me feel the bread? And just the narrator says, you know, after everything I've told you, you really intend on being the kind of woman where the baker won't <laughs> let you feel the bread. It's just this, like... Mm rant and this beautiful twist and it's not it has nothing to do with that short story but I think honestly I love that feeling of mm. just like just sort of the list and the litany and it's it's so great to find a structure for something that's that fun yeah. that actually works within the book yeah. um so yeah it's a joy to read <laughs> um I want to talk a bit about humor 
sure. and being funny. Uh, writing humorous fiction or non-fiction is notoriously difficult. Um, but like some other great comedic writers such as David Sedaris, Sarah Val, Simon Rich, David Rakoff, Oh. You are a master. You, you're very funny on the page. And I wondered how carefully and delicately do you construct that humour? Um, oh, gosh. Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tell us how to be funny. sounds so gross, honestly. <laughs> it's like, oh, this whole thing. No, I mean, I think that what I, what I do is I can be too punny. Right. Um, but my my way of speaking, I, I is through analogies. Um, there are moments I think of hopefully beauty and poetry um, and sincerity in this mm. novel and in everything I write, um, and maybe a little bit of sadness as well. Mm. Um, but mostly, I would be a very bad poet, and I know. I've tried, <laughs> although my last shot was the eighth grade. But uh, let's just yeah, let's yeah, just yeah. let's I just call you know, that you know, an informative yeah, piece yeah, of information. Yeah. Um, but I feel like um, no, I it's how I that's what's in place of poetry for me, or a place mm. of describing the world is. I tend to speak pretty heavily in analogies, um, and those come out as as funny. So the intent is mm. really, honestly, not necessarily to be funny, but the most accurate way I can think of to describe something. Um, mm. And usually analogies are funny. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I, I would parse it more that way than like, oh, ha, 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 I'm trying to be this like symbol bashing monkey. And in fact, when I do try to do that, when I can feel this creeping sense of like, either what's expected of me or what I expect of myself, or maybe honestly, frankly, hey, it's a weak piece of writing. Let's punch it up mm. with jokes. Um, I do, I am lucky that I have editors both on the sort of magazine level and on the book level that, um, are extremely hard to please. Right. <laughs> and they're like, this is patently unfunny. Right. They pull you back. Yeah. Is it, is it easier to be funny in fiction or nonfiction or is it the same? Um, it depends. I think I probably, uh, I mean, she, Lola is very funny. Lola is very funny. Her dialogue. Her dialogue so was great. fun to write um but also equally funny was her her straight men her cast of mm. you know i mean the the way it was it's it's fun to sort of spread your wings and write people that are funny in a different way mm. you know clive is funny because he has absolutely no clue that yeah. he's funny mm. um you know and he's very sincere in his endeavors and vadi her best friend is this sort of um sort of otherworldly airheaded kind of person mm. who turns out to have more of a soul than mm. she seems. And then her other friend, Zach, is this sort of like frustrated, like uh, neo-Marxist who uses a Blackberry. You know, I don't know. They're, they're funny in their own ways. <laughs> and Boots. Boots. Yeah, boots. boots. That was actually the hardest. So basically mm. she's... The fiancé. The fiancé. So she's engaged. She's having these doubts. And so what's difficult in that balance, I mean, this might be too detailed for you know those who haven't read the book yet, but what's difficult is like... I want to keep people in this literal suspense, this sort of like suspension mm. of we like him. Yeah. How much do we like him? Yeah. But if he's too wonderful, she's terrible. Yeah, what's her deal? Yeah, right? That's true. Yeah. And if he's awful, why is this a problem? Yeah. This shouldn't get past page five. <laughs> so it's yeah. actually, he was actually incredibly difficult, even though he's not in the book that much, to find the balance of like, what is what is good about yeah. him? Um, and then you find out a l some stuff. Yeah. Let's not reveal that because that <laughs> yeah, would yeah, 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 yeah. We're not yeah, revealing then, that. Then, then some stuff happens. Um, it's a great book. Some stuff happens. <laughs> You'll love it. <laughs> we, we, we will have questions in about five minutes. So okay. just keep thinking on what you want to ask Sloane. But I've got plenty more. Um, so I am sorry to always be putting your fiction and nonfiction writing oh, in sort okay. of oppositional terms. But you're one of only a few writers who routinely and seemingly very comfortably move between the two. Um, and I wondered in terms of process, is there a difference for you when you're approaching a piece mm. of fiction versus a piece of nonfiction? Yes. A huge one, although it's very boring. I love boring process. <laughs> Tell me everything. Um, well, the nonfiction up until this point um, have been essays, mm. which end... Yeah, right. <laughs> All the time. 
as much as they begin, one might say. Um, and so, and so, it's not this like long. You can sort of water this plant and have you know the thought is complete, the points have been made, and then you move on. Um, and so, uh, you can see a lot of the essays I've written. I'm just gonna put a number on it. Let's say like. 15. I've known the last paragraph before I started right. writing them. Um, and so I have that goal to get to. I think, I don't know who's done that with a novel. Joyce Finnegan's Wake cheated. But like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, how do yeah, you, to, yeah. to, to, to see that far ahead? Um, and there's so much seeding of control, I find, more with a novel because so much is already given to you with nonfiction because you're yeah. bouncing off the real world. Um, and you are, of course, in fiction as well, but you, it's just a real, a lot of choice that's yeah. different than, than with nonfiction. I'm always really interested in the parts of the creative process that are hidden from the artist, from the creator. Yeah. And I see we have Ella Baxter in the audience and she wrote a wonderful essay about oh. this. She's in the front row. Um, oh, you're, just, you're like down. <laughs> <laughs> and it only, it might only later reveal itself to you or it may never. And you, uh, it, it's like you, what you, what you don't understand about your own yes, process. There's a lot that I think, I think um, you start after, you know, a hundred plus essays or whatever it mm. is you start to realize like certain things you do all the time. Right. And for me, it's the training wheels, like where, you know, oftentimes, and it's it's always really painful when this is true. Um, and so luckily it's not true all the time, but okay. oftentimes the first few lines and the last few lines have to go. Right. And it's, oh, they're it's really hard to cut. Yeah. yeah. Um, can we talk about your next book a little yes. bit? Yes. So it's going to be a return to nonfiction. Yes. And back to Titanic. Back to Titanic. <laughs> grief is for people. It's coming out next year and it explores the five stages of grief. What can you tell us about it? It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Not the book. <laughs> um, uh, okay. So basically um, it's structured in five parts. It's the first really full length narrative nonfiction I've ever mm. written, which I believe the word for that is memoir. Um, <laughs> I'm like, you call it a chuppa? Uh, but it is about um, progressively larger forms of grief, but mostly about um, the suicide of um, a very dear friend. Um, but it's also about a burglary that happened right before that. Um, and then the pandemic hit. Right. Um, and... Um, but it's it's also sort of a, a New York kind of um, story and memoir, and tonally it should be interesting because tonally I don't think I'm very proud of it. Um, it's, it was an incredibly difficult book to write. Mm, sure. It was an incredibly difficult book to work on during the pandemic mm -hmm. when I was you know a 500 square foot apartment facing a wall writing about suicide. Mm. Um, but. Uh, for all the seriousness of the topic, I felt for the first time, I don't think I'm someone who could be accused of identifying a marketplace. <laughs> right? Do you know? Yeah, I'm not yeah. like, oh, like everyone really needs to know about like how this chair was made. Yeah. I'm going to tell them. Um, for, for the first time, it felt like something that didn't exist that I wished mm. um, had existed uh, tonally about loss and different kinds of loss. And the reason it's called grief is for people is because obviously it's not just. Um, but uh, I think it's it's a really uproarious book about the worst possible things. So. Yeah. And you've said that the, these two books, Cult Classic yes. and Grief is for People, have overlapping DNA. They do have some, although I do tend to think about like there's such darkness in Cult Classic and there's such light in Grief is for People, like really messed up <laughs> light. Yeah. Um, uh, I'll give you a tiny example um, that is going to sound horrible out of context, but I was coming here to Australia um, and my friend was supposed to cat sit for me. Um, and so I obviously, I had to hire a, a different friend who I knew and she said, oh, I thought, you know, what happened to the old cat sitter? And I think when you are in the throes of grief, you are on the side of one person only and that person is not here anymore. Mm. And I wrote not really thinking of her feelings, well, the old cat said her killed himself. And so she, and she, I could see the dots go. Yeah. And I'm like, oh God. So to fix the situation, I wrote, I mean, just say you don't want to do it. Am I right? <laughs> like, 
which I think he would appreciate. So this is what I mean. There's the dark, you yeah, know, yeah. I, and so there's lightness, but I do think of them as like the, you know, the funny twin would be cult classic and like the Wednesday Adams twin is, is en route, you know, yeah. but I do think obviously, I mean, they came from the same person, so they're yeah. going to share some, some DNA. Were you writing them at the same time? Or was no, the, I was, was editing no, one right, and then, writing. and then writing the other, um, yeah. which is a little bit insane, but also kind of kept, I don't know. Yeah. Um, it's really weird because I haven't actually figured out how to talk about yeah, the second yet. So I don't really have the elevator pitch. Yeah, sure. So in for place of an elevator pitch, I just told you a really insensitive story about texting. <laughs> so, a dark show. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we're now ready for some questions from the audience. Yes. So or just, text. <laughs> just pop your hand up if you have a question for Sloan. I see, and, I see yeah, at least see one hand. hand I love when people ask right away. Yeah. It's like hard to do that. Hello. Hi. Um, earlier you said if you had the login and password for any of our Instagrams, you get to... Don't give it to her. <laughs> Please give it to me. No, it sounds like you have some experience from that. So have you ever done something like that? And tell us more. Oh, have I ever... Um, so the question is, have I ever l logged into someone else's Instagram account? No. <laughs> or set up, um, set up a chance meeting of some kind. I'm so sorry. One more time. Set up a chance meeting of some kind. Oh, set up a chance yeah, meeting of some kind. Yeah, actually done what happens in the book. No. Okay, no. To test it. I have never done that. Um, I have wanted never to, done that. Right? I definitely <laughs> have had the experience of being very heartbroken about someone or, or, you know, by someone and then had like drinks with a mutual friend and kind of like been so sort of wrapped up in it that you I've I've thought like wow somewhere in that phone is like right. casual texts <laughs> with this monster you know or casual texts with yeah. a person who thinks I'm a monster yeah. you know and and, and and so I definitely have thought like I wish I could do this sort of cinematic thing, you know, like the Superman x-ray vision thing, but the modern version where I somehow see those texts yeah. um, or interfere in some way. But no, I, I've never um, broken the law <laughs> <laughs> or set up something like that. No. Um, but obviously I've thought about it yeah, enough a lot. to give it to a fictional character. Yeah, you've thought about it a yeah, lot. Yeah, yeah. There's a question in the front row. I can't. I've got a mic coming. Oh, are we not? Yeah, we don't have. Oh, the, I'm not, not meant to. We don't have the capacity. Sorry, <laughs> we don't have the capacity to call on people. Um, I have a beautiful memory of reading one of your essays to my mum and sisters, and us all bent over, laughing, peals of laughter, tears all down the face, and I was wondering who makes you cry with laughter. Oh, yeah. Oh my gosh! First of all, that's very nice, and the <laughs> egomaniacal part of me will refrain from asking you which essay. <laughs> Um, who makes okay? David Rakoff, who we mentioned, mm -hmm. makes me laugh so. I can I can pull up a line and it makes me laugh as um, in, in this way where I, I at some point he described um, eating like orange cheese on a bar is like clearly pimento cheese, but he says that it's the color that when found in nature means I'm poisonous. Don't eat me, <laughs> you know. And it, it's just like the the perfect turns of phrase mm -hmm. that he has. Cracks me up. Um, also, you know, classic Dorothy Parker cracks me up. Um, I do like Simon Rich. Um, I think Chuck Klosterman is very, very funny um, in a way that I appreciate and that I've actually done events with him where we've actually had the analogy kind of conversation where I'm like, you speak in scenarios. Where he's like, what if a horse <laughs> paid you to kick a turtle? Sorry, this is a is that how he talks? Uh, this is being recorded, right? Yeah, right. I'm sorry, Chuck. He's <laughs> like, what if? And you just, you know, and and then mine again is sort of an analogy. Is, um, and I'm trying to think uh, who else. Um, basically, every British writer there is. I find Martin Amos very funny. Yeah, Martin Amos. Is funny. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, but also in terms of like, I don't know what makes me laugh. I don't know. I don't have like a specific sort of canon of, of person who I, I necessarily turn to. I don't know. Um, something dry. When you, you write something funny yourself, do you ever laugh? Um, no. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know on the first draft, there's a little bit of the like self-congratulatory right. thing. But I know something's funny if at least one joke out of like 300 pages, I'm like... <laughs> 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 That's a good one. It's pretty good. 
like, you know, there's that there's and the one I can tell you mm-hmm. in cult classic is um, when, you know, Clive is explaining how this sort of twisted experiment is going to work and he feels like he's going to scale it like any sort of mm. wellness guru person. And he's like, imagine the impact for like, you know, addiction for this. And he's like naming stuff for like nuclear war. And she sends something like, you're going to make Kim Jong-un confront all yeah. his exes. And I just, <laughs> somehow I'm like, that's a great eh. line. That's a great but for line. the most part, nothing. It, it's like, it's no. like I become my own harshest. Right. Yeah. It's hard to do yeah, it. Interesting. But I, I feel like I should have a better answer for who That's makes me answer. laugh. I don't know. My cat. David Rakoff is a great David Rakoff is just hilarious. So I think funny. he was just the funniest man because he had such poetry and mm. such heart and magic in him mm. and was so like one of the old men in the Muppets. Mm. Yeah. And that voice. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah, voice. Yeah. Do we have any more questions? We've probably got time for one or two more. I see a hand. Hello, how are you? Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, I have a question that I think is often over-asked, but I selfishly am a bit obsessed with it. Um, when did you first know and feel in your soul that you were like a writer with a capital W? <laughs> um, that's so funny because we were laughing uh Backstage, there's a there's a huge Wheeler sign with a big W. In the back. I'm like I'm like just about five minutes ago when they made me pose in front of a giant W. <laughs> like, that's when I knew. Um, <laughs> but actually, genuinely, I mean, the half modest, half genuinely true answer is that like still working on it. Mm. Um, but I think to the to the sort of heart of your question is. Um, it's how you proved you were intelligent in my family. And, you know, there's a question that gets asked that's sort of like a cousin of that question um, about humor and how people knew, you know, when they were funny. Mm. Um, and men always have a very similar, it's like to avoid bullies, um, to, to fit in or to impress other men or girls. And uh, for me, it was just always like how you proved you were smart. You should mm. see the rest of them. <laughs> Like, but like, you know, I mean, and, and it's like, so I think I always was the one sort of writing it down and I'm the youngest of my family by quite a bit. So I always felt like a bit of an outsider. And so I feel like I was always writing little stories and things like that. Um, but I mean, I went to school for, uh, anthropology and archeology, span um, which weirdly has some yeah connective tissue in terms yeah. of other people's stories. But so I think that there wasn't a moment when the Bellagio fountains went off. <laughs> You know, and I was like, oh, thank God. But so in a way, it's that's such a, a non-committal answer. I apologize. But it's like it's a, always and, and not yet. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. Is there a, one last question? Someone with a hand you guys are up. great with the questions. Yeah, it's good questions. Hi. Um, Hi. The detail and the characters in Cult Classic just jumped off the page for me. So I'm wondering, have you sold the movie rights? Oh. It would make a great movie. Thank you. <laughs> and I especially want to see who's cast as the Olympian. You want to see? Wait, say it again. <laughs> who's Olympian. cast as the Olympian? Who's cast as the Olympian? Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Two things. One is the, the <laughs> Olympian is the only one who has like a little bit where like an email had to get sent um, in advance. <laughs> in advance of right, the book. Right. I mean, everyone else is truly it's truly made up. Um, but um, yes. <laughs> I love that. So uh, yes. The, the movie rights have been oh. purchased, and <laughs> <laughs> you guys are very, very supportive. But it also, like, yeah, but it doesn't—it doesn't mean anything no. yet. But um, I, um, I'm, I'm working on the script oh, wow. as we speak. I mean, not you know, right now, but later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not Joyce Carol Oates. So yeah. I don't write all the time. Yeah, <laughs> like all the like jogging but with that, the pen. That you know? is so exciting, and you, you can. You're so right. You can really see it. I'm glad. Well, dialogue's always been, and mm. in nonfiction, you know, you were asking about the fiction mm. and nonfiction and dialogue. I've always, um, I've always really enjoyed writing both real and made mm. up. I'd say it's one of my favorite things about you as a writer is, you. is your dialogue. I just and I love dialogue and I hate bad dialogue. I feel like there is so much bad dialogue or do, it doesn't need to ring true necessarily, but it just needs to right. work 
as though humans are talking to each other. Well, you're talking about like the pilot disease. Yeah. I mean, I know we don't have much time, but I, I, the, the pilot disease that I always feel like when I see a television show and mm. like someone walks into a bar and they're sad and the person behind the bar says, hey, it's me, your best friend since <laughs> kindergarten. You can talk to, <laughs> to me, me. <laughs> and then uses the person's full name. Yeah. Or I mean, I, I would have that person arrested. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> that's, a crazy, that's a crazy way to behave. That is such a good note to end on. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> because it's completely true. Um, huge thanks to you, oh, Sloane thank Crosley, you. for your thank insights you. and your generosity tonight and for these books and your writing over the years. I want to say a huge thanks to the Wheeler Centre for organising this wonderful event. A reminder to everyone that Bella from Hill of Content Bookshop has Sloan's books here for sale. Um, and finally, thanks to you all so much for coming along, being such thoughtful readers and thinkers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. It was amazing. You've been listening to Sloan Crosley in conversation with Jacqueline Krupe, recorded on Thursday the 9th of March 2023 at the Wheeler Centre. Sloane Crossley appeared in partnership with Adelaide Writers Week and Sydney Opera House's All About Women Festival. The event was supported by the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund, a Victorian Government and City of Melbourne partnership. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.